Spring is in full swing and summer is just around the corner. A great time for a beach getaway at the Oceanfront Boardwalk Plaza Hotel in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Enjoy the best of oceanfront accommodations and amazing dining right on the beach, both with great views of the ocean and boardwalk. Enjoy a soak in the heated indoor spa pool or book the adults-only concierge level and relax in the rooftop hot tubs. Book online at boardwalkplaza.com or call 800-33 beach thanks to the boardwalk plaza for being the bridge podcast network sponsor story jumpers welcome to another episode of your favorite storytelling podcast are you ready to hear a great story of course that's why you're a story jumper what would you do if your father standing in the front hall next to the grandfather clock suddenly vanishes your buddy's mom helps you file a police report but everyone is too puzzled to be helpful. Then you take a walk in your down and out neighborhood and find a clock shop where there had only been an empty building the day before. You walk in and enjoy this reading of Guardians of Time by Phyllis Wheeler. The Grandfather Clock, a short story by Phyllis Wheeler. Read by Phyllis Wheeler. You young men may not sit there. The crisp, accented voice came from behind me. Holy coppersmith, what do young people think these days? I jumped up from the delicate antique chair and whirled around. With my elbow, I knocked one of the dozens of ticking clocks to the floor, and it landed with a clatter. A short, older man with very little hair, wearing a black cloak with a bit of white at the throat, stood at the back of the shop. He waved a finger at me. The one who breaks it, buys it, he said. Sorry, I said as I picked up the fallen clock, put it to my ear, and put it back on a shelf. I think it still works. This clock shop shouldn't even be here in this normally vacant warehouse at the North River front of St. Louis. I'd stumbled onto it today in one of my normal after-school walks. My head buzzed with disbelief. He frowned and stepped forward to pick up the clock. As he examined it, I looked around. The dusty shop was so cluttered that I could hardly move without bumping into something. The clocks ticked, talked, whirred, and otherwise filled the silence. Could he hear my heart pounding? He frowned at the possibly broken clock. Did you come in to buy a clock, young man? If so, I suggest you do so and be on your way. His accent? I couldn't place it. I'm looking for my father. Ah, you must be my appointment then. He sounded irritated. What? Just what I didn't want, a call to leave my rest and studies. I'm really going to have to have a talk with whoever is doing my appointments. What? Never mind. Here I am. I'd better get used to the idea. Continue, please, young man. I scratched my head. The mysterious man didn't make sense. 
but my life wasn't making sense. My father vanished three weeks ago, standing next to a grandfather clock in our entry hall. He really was talking to me from the next room one minute, gone the next. I twisted my hands. Did you go to the police? My best friend Eddie's mom took me to the police. We filled out paperwork, and they're supposed to be investigating. But I haven't heard from them. And today you noticed the shop and stopped in, he sighed. Normally this building is empty, I said. And then there's the name of your shop, Guardians of Time Clock Shop, I said. I never heard of such a name. Ah, he said. So how did your shop just uh, show up out of nowhere, I asked. He pursed his lips. I told you I had an appointment. The skin on the back of my neck felt tingly. With me? Yes, now let's get down to it, he said. Your age. Thirteen. Who is your father? Jonathan Bosch, sir. He's a judge. I don't know why I was so upset about my father, who was always absent. He would cared for me and played with me when I was little. But as I grew older, he was usually away doing something else. I remembered the day I learned how unimportant I was to him. Dad may have been known in the community, but he couldn't make it to see me in the starring role of our fifth grade play. Since Mom had passed away when I was four, that meant nobody came to the play to see me. But at least Dad took me to a baseball game once a year. He knew how much I loved baseball, warm summer evenings in the ballpark, a parade of personalities salted with the tart scent of chips and beer. The man cleared his throat. So your father, being a judge, there are people who don't like him. Yeah. People who could sneak into that room where he was and whisk him away. Could that be? Was Dad in the hands of kidnappers? I shook my head. No, he was alone for only a few seconds. There wasn't time. He pondered. What will you give me if I help you? I slowly pulled my one treasure from my pocket. I hesitated. Could I trust this man with it? I'm sorry, what is your name, sir? I asked. An unpronounceable German name. You won't have to remember it. Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bobastus von Hohenheim. I stifled a snicker. He flared his nostrils and went on. They call me Paracelsus. I am from what you call Switzerland, and from when you call the Renaissance. Really? I said, I haven't met anyone from the Renaissance lately. Really, he said, take it or leave it. It's true the clock shop had somehow appeared in a formerly empty building. Maybe I'd best go with the flow. I handed him the key. I'm William Bosch, I said. He snorted. And you have a funny Dutch name.
He took my treasure, an ornate silver key, blackened with age, and went into his office. Hearing nothing, I followed. He wasn't there. So, where was he? Nervously, I searched for a closet, a spot under a desk, any place he might have hidden himself. Nothing! I fidgeted as I stood in the office doorway. Three minutes later, he reappeared and held up the key. I have returned, he said. Did I just see someone step out of thin air? I shivered and hugged my churning stomach. Where were you? When were you, you mean? Right. I am not sure. Many hundreds of years ago, in this same spot. A Native American village, part of a sprawling city, I believe. It was evening, and the adults were coming home. Coming home? From building big mounds that used to be all over the place in this area, my boy. Mounds for worshipping, for burying, for root cellars. I don't know. The people carried baskets of dirt on their heads, long lines of them headed northwest away from the river. Just now it was dusk, and they were released to go home. There were a lot of happy children, and a few grandmas pouring out of their huts and greeting the papas and... How did you get there? I blurted out. Did you see my father? There was no grandfather clock there to serve as a vector, of course, he went on, as if I had not interrupted. Huh? I said. It was because of your key, young man. I did see your father, the judge. You're kidding. He was in a wooden cage in the village plaza, an open place among the huts. He was so glad to see someone who could speak to him. Why didn't he come back with you? I tried to find the way to unlock his jailhouse door, but someone noticed and called out. I grabbed his hand through the bars and turned the key in the air. But your key transports only one. We have to go get him. It's your key, young man. I give it back to you. He extended it to me, and I took it. My hand shook, and then my arm, and then my whole body, even though it wasn't cold. My grandfather had given it to me with lifted eyebrows when I was a small child, months before he died. I'd suspected the key was special, but I never knew. To use it, Paracelsus said, simply hold it up as if you are unlocking the front door of a grandfather clock, and turn it to the left. You are unlocking the front door of the invisible great clock, the one that transports people in time. My shivering increased. Playing with the key for all these years, I could have accidentally sent myself away to who knows when in time. Did Grandfather know that when he gave it to me? I suspected he did not. Using this key required courage. And what kind of courage did I have? I'd been walking alone around the nearly vacant neighborhood. I thought I was bold, but was I bold enough to turn this key on purpose? One person can time travel with this key at a time, I said. 
so I could go to him, and only one of us could come back. That seems to be the case. How did my father get there? Paracelsus shrugged. Your grandfather Clark must have done it. Clocks have interesting properties. If I do this, how can I be sure I'll end up where my father is? When he is, I mean. You can't. How did you get there to when he is? There's a guiding hand in the universe. That's what I've found over a long lifetime of many travels. He looked at me from beneath bushy gray eyebrows. A sending hand, you might say. You were sent, I said. Yes. Sent to him. Yes. Sent to me also. Yes. My spine felt like a highway for centipedes. The next day after school, I went to Eddie's house next door, where I'd been living since Dad disappeared. I googled the Native American village that was St. Louis long ago. I found out that it was part of a huge city centered just across the Mississippi River. 800 years ago, Cahokia was bigger than London was. My insides churned. I told Eddie's mom I was going out for a walk. Eddie, engrossed in his phone, hardly looked up. Again, I took myself through the maze of vacant and underused warehouses on the near north side. The Guardians of Time clock shop had vanished. The warehouse storefront, full of cobwebs, looked like no one had been inside it for years. March Coffee Company, said the faded sign painted on the brick high above, and next to it, some graffiti that I couldn't read. My hands felt clammy. Paracelsus had been sent to me. I followed Broadway to downtown, a place of tall buildings, endless concrete, and occasional pedestrians. I had to decide. Was I willing to go to my father, hand him my key, send him home, and stay in the village where my pale skin would make me stand out and no one could understand me? And yet there was my father, kept in a cage in the village square. Why did they do that to him? Were they afraid of him? What were they going to do to him? I had to turn back. Eddie's mom would start to worry about me. I looped around the stadium and dodged a beggar as I headed north again. I didn't want to be a stranger. I didn't want Dad to be a stranger either. For breakfast, I ate toast at Eddie's house and washed it down with milk. Eddie slurped his oatmeal and grinned at me. Then he noticed my agitation. You okay? Not really. What's up? Oh, I'm just about to leap into the unknown. Down some kind of time corridor or something. Maybe I'll find my father. Cool, he said. What game is that? The time game. If I don't come back, it's because I landed someplace dangerous. Or maybe it wasn't dangerous, but I couldn't get back. 
Eddie nodded wide-eyed. I haven't heard of that one. That's some game. Yeah. I left Eddie to his oatmeal and went next door to my house. I wanted Dad back, but I was mad at him for putting his job first. In fact, I loved my dad. I had to do this. Clenching my teeth, I faced the grandfather clock in the front hall. If there was a guiding hand in the universe, I needed him now. I held the key in the air in front of me, squeezed my eyes shut, murmured, help me, and turned the key to the left. Noisy voices greeted my ears. I slipped the key into my pocket and opened my eyes. I gazed at an open plaza, surrounded by thatched huts made of wood posts and stucco. The sweltering sun beat down from overhead. It must be midday. Not far away, children shrieked as they chased and tossed a brown ball with what looked like tiny, long-handled badminton rackets. There, under a large awning, was the cage. It was empty. I got closer and looked inside. Definitely empty. The door hung open, in fact. I stood motionless in the shade, hiding as best I could in plain sight. The kids chased their ball farther away. Where was everyone else? I spied two lightly clothed adults sitting cross-legged in the shade of another huge awning not far away. A third person wearing what could have been a regular white shirt appeared to be stacking wood in the merciless sun nearby. Was that my father? Or was it someone who killed him and took his clothes? Holding the key in my fist in my pocket, I walked closer. I took deep breaths to calm my beating heart. I could leave at any time. Shade should come from trees, not awnings. Where were the trees? All cut down? A twinge passed between my shoulder blades, even though I was sweating. My father, clad in very worn dress pants and the tattered untucked white shirt, dropped a load of cut wood onto a pile and straightened up. Well, he called, you came. The other two individuals, a man and a woman, took a good look at me and launched a lot of animated words at each other and my father. I grabbed my father in a sweaty hug. Dad, I said, Dad. My father squeezed. My son, he said. Then he repeated some words I didn't know. The other two nodded. My handsome dad could get anybody to like him, and he was smart, smart enough to pick up another language quickly. He already knew French and Spanish. How did you get here? I asked. He took me by the shoulders and looked me in the eye. I've been thinking about that a lot these past six months. Six months? It's been three weeks. The kids started coming back, tossing the ball back and forth with the sticks.
A shout went up when they saw me. My heart started pounding. I raised my voice. I want you to come back, Dad. I shoved the key into his hand. This will take you home. Hold it in front of you. Turn it to the left. Don't worry about me. I can stay here. I'll be fine. I swallowed a lump in my throat. The kids surrounded me, chattering, touching my skin, my strange clothes, and my stranger hair, wavy and brown compared to theirs, straight and black. They wore clothes that covered less of themselves than my t-shirt, shorts, and tennis shoes did. They crowded me. I wasn't used to so much touching. If I stayed here, how would I ever become one of them? I had to do something. I pointed to my chest. William, I said. Then I pointed to the tallest boy's chest and lifted my eyebrows. Mogoxie, he said. Mogoxie. I repeated his name as I stepped away from my father, not looking at him. He had to accept my gift. He had to leave. I pointed to the ball. Ball? I asked. Tabe said a small girl, giggling. I sneaked a glance at the adults. They still stood there. I picked the ball up and tossed it down the path. The kids and I took off after it. After they found a racket stick for me, we played ball. I learned the names of 12 more kids and a number of other useful body parts and things around us. All the while, I refused to look back toward my father. Finally, I looked over. He continued to slowly move wood from a storehouse to a heap in the town square and paused to glance over at me. Soon I got a chance to take a breather next to Dad. The man and woman sat watching from a bit of a distance. Were they supervising? The man wore a white hat of some sort. Nobody else had one. I've been thinking, Dad said, about that grandfather clock. Tell me. I was standing next to the clock, changing from my shoes into slippers. Something I always do, but usually not right there. I leaned against the clock case with my hand, twisted my hand to the left as I bent down. Then suddenly I was here, surrounded by first an ocean of kids, and then by some very suspicious adults. Ah, I said. The ball bounced up to me, and the kids cheered. I had to take a swat at it. As I moved away, I felt inner bonds to my father, stretching and stretching. All I wanted, all I'd ever wanted, was to stand next to him, be with him. And as usual, I couldn't do it. My brain clicked into overdrive as I stopped at the water station, a tree stump that held a large bowl of water and a dipper made of wood. I slurped water and my new friends watched. William, said a young girl, pointing at me. William, I nodded, then I pointed at her. Nomitsetsi. I repeated it and nodded at her. She grinned back. As my new friends took turns, Sipping water, I walked back to Dad. 
Here, he said, handing me the key, you go back. I am not going to use it without you. Dad, I won't leave you. Go back. But Dad, you need to go back. Live your life. Go. Dad, I can't leave you. Go. My shoulders sagged. I'd failed. I sighed, pulled out the key, and turned it to the left, and stood again in the entry hall of my house, next to the mysterious grandfather clock. The silence of the old house seemed even more suffocating than before. The tall old clock wasn't even ticking. My mind raced. I had to figure out how to rescue my father. I could time travel in two ways. One way involved turning my ornate key in an invisible keyhole of the great clock to the left. The other, from my father's report, involved putting my palm on our grandfather clock case and twisting my hand to the left. Somehow the grandfather clock in our front hall had special time travel properties. But how could I rescue him? I had a way for only one person to get back. There was no grandfather clock in St. Louis 800 years ago. Only the key in my pocket. My eye fell on a skeleton key in the tall, slender lower door of the grandfather clock. If it was a time travel key, it could solve my problem or it could take me to some other time where my father wasn't. Did I dare turn it? I needed all the help I could get. I took a deep breath. My midsection felt taut, strong. I was done being afraid. I'd already decided the matter. I wanted my father to come back home, without me, if necessary. Help me, I murmured. Send me. I turned the key to the right. The cabinet door fell open, and I could see the still pendulum. I felt deflated. I hadn't gone anywhere or anywhere. Then I closed the cabinet and turned the key to the left. The door locked. That was all. So I pulled the key out of the clock, held it up, and turned it to the left in the air, as if turning it in the lock of the great clock. I stood at a distance in the village square, and an evening breeze ruffled my hair. Thank you, I breathed out to whoever and whatever had sent me to him. Dad's pale back gleamed in the evening sun as he stood under an awning, wearing only some sort of a parchment kilt facing away from me. I could see my dad, and I had the two keys in my pocket. It wouldn't be long now before we get back to our creaky old house. He was going to look odd at home until he could get his clothes changed. The square was crowded. Villagers gathered outside their huts around small fires, one group only twenty feet away. I smelled something like corn fritters, and my mouth watered. Three children at a fire noticed me, pointed, and shouted. 
Adults took up the cry, and three men started running in my direction. A muscular man reached me and grabbed me, slinging me over his shoulder. Kids shrieked, William, William! Though the man's shoulder poked my stomach, a name came to me. Mogoxi, I cried. I pointed at the boy in question, barely noticing that he looked a lot bigger than last time. I felt myself being dumped onto my feet, and I turned around. Now I could see Dad walking resolutely toward us, his face unreadable. Others followed him. A crowd filled the plaza. The man who had carried me frowned at Mogoxi, who appeared to be giving a breathless explanation of our afternoon playing ball. Months ago? Years ago? Judging from Dad's beard and new clothing, it had to be a long time. Dad stopped in front of a woman with large, dark eyes. He draped an arm around her, and the two of them turned toward me. What did this mean? I took deep breaths and closed my eyes as my plans crashed around me like pieces of broken glass. All I'd ever longed for was my dad. Mogoxi, still talking, paused for breath. Dad stepped forward and spoke in the new language. He sounded like the real thing to me. He gestured toward me and then put his, his arm around my shoulder. We stood there for a few minutes, and the crowd started to wander away. The woman moved back up to his side. I faced him and pulled out both keys. Look, Dad, we can go back. I found another key. Just hold it up and turn it to the left, like you're unlocking an invisible grandfather clock. We'll do it together. Let's go home. He shook his head and lifted the woman's hand. I found peace here, son, he said. A low-stress life. The love of my life. I'm not going back. But aren't you a prisoner? Not anymore. They've come to trust me, even given me some leadership tasks. The chief that runs the place, the fellow with the white hat, has taken me on as his assistant. This, he indicated the woman, is his daughter, now my wife. I swallowed hard. I'd never, ever imagined that I would have a stepmother who spoke a different language. She could come to St. Louis. No, son, he said. She would never make the adjustment. I couldn't do that to her. Besides, I like it here. You would, too. What? Me, too? Me? Stay here? Well, on the last trip, I'd been prepared to do it, to rescue him. I took a deep breath and looked around. People were standing around fires and eating supper. The aroma of roasted corn and some kind of meat, deer meat, tickled my nose and set my mouth watering. The dark-eyed woman smiled at me and said something, beckoning to me. She's inviting you to eat, said Dad. Dinner's ready. Uh, I don't know. So you need to decide, said Dad. Stay here 
or go back. Give me a minute. I turned my back and took a little walk down the dusty path. I turned a corner. There in the shade stood Paracelsus, his black cloak clearly the wrong thing to wear in this warm evening. Beads of sweat hung on his bald head. Will, he said, I've overheard everything. This is so unusual that an accidental traveler wants to stay elsewhere. Yeah, tell me about it. I scuffed my tennis shoe in the dust and sighed. He's pretty good at building a life that doesn't include me. You're not trapped here if you stay. You have two keys. So I could go back and forth, live two lives? No, not really. Remember, you have little to no control over where you land. It's the guiding hand that moves you. Most likely, you would be leaving your old life behind. I blinked. It's possible, he went on, you might get bitten by the travel bug. There's a group of us who help those who get into difficulties, the guardians of time. Perhaps you'd eventually like to join us. Wow, that was a lot to take in. Make a good decision, Will. Maybe I'll be seeing you. He stepped into thin air. I turned around and stopped. What did I want to do? Stay with my dad and my new stepmother in the year 1200 or so? Or return to the 21st century to live with Eddie? Go to college? Become a lawyer or something and in the meantime play lots of video games? Soon I stood in front of my dad again. My dad, the person I wanted to be with more than anything. You have a decision to make, he said simply. My throat clogged. Dad, I croaked. Will, in the past year, I've had a lot of time to think about my life, about what I wasn't accomplishing with the time God gave me, about what a terrible father I've been. A tear trickled down his cheek. I blinked. Forgive me, he said. I, uh, when your mother died, I... He took a deep breath. I couldn't do what I needed to do after your mother died. Be a father to you, I mean... I was only looking at myself, my broken heart. I swallowed hard, afraid to look him in the eye. Was he really? I guess what I'm trying to say is, I'm so glad you're here. I want to act like a real father now. I couldn't believe my ears. We can't go to baseball games here, but there is another kind of game they play, he said. Chunky, with sticks and stone discs. We'll go to chunky games. Suddenly, I knew, deep in my gut, I belonged with Dad wherever he was. Chunky it is, I said. Wow, Story Jumpers, what a great time travel story with a lot of heart that leaves you asking, what would you do? Stay in the 13th century with your long-lost father? Or return to the life you've always known. Well, maybe we can get some insight from author Phyllis Wheeler, who's joined us again. Hey, Phyllis, how are you? I'm great. I am so glad to talk to you again. Yes, and I am too. It's really good to be here. 
Well, the last time you were with us, you shared The Long Shadow, which I personally love that story. And I'm sure the Story Jumpers did too. Cool. Yeah, I was thrilled to do that. So I've got to ask you, this story is is a bit different than your last one that you shared with us. Why did you write this short story? Is there something in your past that prompted you to do it? I don't know. I, I When I look around me, I see the hand of God doing things. And it's, I don't know, it's not as particularly obvious to everyone, I think. So that's, that's why I, I wrote this book. I just wanted to... Uh, make it more obvious to people that that the hand of God is at work. And I also wanted to write a story for, um, you know, 8 to 12, young, a little bit younger than my other book. I've, so I have a, uh, a series planned. I've just finished the first draft of the f- number one novel. So this uh, short story leads into, is a prequel sort of, leads right into the, the first book. Ooh, that sounds exciting. So, okay. Serious question for you. I mean, there are probably a lot of young inventors listening who are trying to work this problem out for us all. But which time travel method seems to be more possible to you? All right, here they are. A car that goes 88 miles per hour before jumping through time, like Back to the Future, or entering a quantum leap accelerator like Dr. Samuel Beckett on that old TV show Quantum Leap, or a telephone booth where you can dial the year you want to visit, like Bill and Ted do in their excellent adventure. Well, I really like the telephone booth, I must say. The series that we're talking about has a clock shop, which is sort of a TARDIS, if you know what a TARDIS is. Oh, yes, Doctor Who. Doctor Who, right. It has its own spot in um, space-time, and whatever's out the windows, you know, might change wherever wherever you've landed, you know. So, uh, yeah, I like, I like that idea. And I also like the idea of, spa- of time travel being imprecise and people getting lost or traveling accidentally. And they need some divine help in figuring out what to do next. Yeah. Or, or maybe they're on a divine mission or something. Did you ever read that old classic story, Rip Van Winkle? Sure. That's a great one. I mean, imagine falling asleep under an old tree and waking up. I don't know. How far did he jump? That's a hundred years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred years. That would throw you off. (laughs) (laughs) Usually when you're writing about time travel, you're you're mining the past, not the future. Mm. That's what I have done so far, going backward. So going forward in time, now that'll be more interesting, I suppose, but I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> yeah. You'd have to try to speculate where, you know, the outcome of certain things happening today and where would they eventually lead. And, um, you know, Winston Churchill has a quote, to look further into the future, one has to look deeper into their past. So something like that. Winston Churchill was, a, a you know, a great man from uh, the UK, and he talked about making good decisions by looking at the past. If you can study history, you'll make wise decisions about the future. So Yes, that is so true. Predicting the future, I don't know. Yeah, a little <laughs> but, more difficult. But what you should do in any given moment, yes, you can look definitely look back. Yes. In your own words, Phyllis, how does the time travel work in this series? Well, you can have a you might have a key, which is this ornate special, very special key that's, you know, two or three inches long, 
maybe made of silver or have seashell on it or something. Very special looking key that you might in, say inherit from somebody. And then, uh, so if you can hold up that key and then you turn it to the left, then um, you might find yourself somewhere else. And you, ha you really have no control over that. That is mm. the divine, the guiding hand that is putting you somewhere else in, in space and time. You could do that. Or you can go to this clock shop, the uh, Guardians of Time clock shop. And uh, that clock shop, like I said, has its own spot in space and time. If you can get into it, like if it, for example, is parked in a storefront here in St. Louis, you walk in and um, you uh, might be able to walk back out into another place and time that um, the clock shop frequents. It, it has its own little set of places that it tends to go. You know, I actually had something like that happen to me once. It wasn't a clock shop, but it was a bookshop. I went in and when I came out, hours had passed. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you worked out, you know, the best way for Will to get around and the Guardians of Time to move through time and space. It still seems a little risky to me. It, you know, that you just don't know where you're going to land. And I guess, you know, you got to rely on the guiding hand, right? Well, yeah, the guiding hand. And he also has provided these guardians of time who are people who can rescue you. Hmm. They're um, medieval alchemists <laughs> and they're apprentices. And they, uh, so they've been granted a, a, a much longer lifespan than you would expect. And because they're on this mission to, uh, Mercy mission to right, help right. people who get stuck, such yeah. as somebody in this story that we just you just heard. So there's another interesting concept related to time travel, and it's known as the butterfly effect. That's this idea that if you travel through time, small events that you take part in might have a very large, widespread consequence. Does Will ever have to worry? about causing a butterfly effect in the Guardians of Time series? I have decided, me, the person in charge, That's right. has decided <laughs> that uh, you can make some little adjustments back in the past, you can, up, to, up to some limited amount, and uh, it won't affect the actual present. Good, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because um, like you say, you know, God at work in our lives has this unique way of redeeming things that we might have spoiled, right? Where we think we've made a mess of it. He works all things out to the good of those who believe in him. And it's interesting to see that happen over and over again, isn't it? It is. So tell me, how has this short story been received by your reader so far? Oh, everybody loves it. You know, I've got a really high rating on Goodreads, which is where you can go if you like and leave a rating. You can't go to Amazon because it isn't for sale. Yeah. So <laughs> you can go to Goodreads. But I've heard only uh, positive feedback personally. Nobody has ever told me they didn't like it. Good. Yeah, I browsed through those reviews and they were very positive. It was it was fun to see all those encouraging words and the, and even the lives that you touched, you know, just that 
reflection that they had thinking about the adventure that Will went through and, and how it touched them. Now, you said that the story's not for sale. How can people get their hands on it if they want to read it? Well, they can go to my website and they can download it in exchange for giving me their email address. So once you give me your email address, you go on to my email newsletter list and you'll hear about upcoming things I'm writing or books I've reviewed lately. I try not to bore you to death. So I just write short little things and uh, you can unsubscribe anytime. Yeah. But that might be where we'll get our first advance notice about the Guardians of Time series. That is true. So if you liked hearing this short story, go and sign up for my newsletter and then you'll get your very own copy of uh, of it to actually look at. Mm-hmm. What. Now, what, what else? You mentioned that you've worked on the first draft of the first novel of this series. Can you tell us anything else about the Guardians of Time series? As, as you noticed at the end of uh, this short story, there were some things that appeared to be a little bit open-ended, like what does Will want to do with his life? Does he want to spend it in a native village with his dad, or does he want to do something different? And, and uh, Paracelsus, the medieval alchemist guardian of time, says something about, you know, maybe you can help us be an assistant. Mm. So that's so I pick up on that. So in this next book, Will is doing that. He's being an assistant oh, wow. to Paracelsus. Exploring um, what that might hold for him. Yeah. So they're rescuing somebody else who's got a time problem. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds real good. So what do you hope that some of the story jumpers will take away from listening to and reading this short story? Well, I hope that they have a, a, a good sense that God is in control and God is good. Mm. That's what I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Phyllis, thanks so much. Please, please keep writing. You've already shared two great stories with us, and I'm sure there's a lot of people eager to read The Guardians of Time. Great. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really have enjoyed talking to you today. You too, Phyllis. I'll talk to you real soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Parents, Guardians of Time, The Grandfather Clock, is a short story that hints at a wider world of possibilities which Phyllis Wheeler is working on. The author, Phyllis Wheeler, set a goal at age 13 to write a children's book, a journey with lots of detours that has taken many years. She's written for daily newspapers, worked on airplanes as a mechanical engineer, and raised four children, including triplet boys, doing some homeschooling along the way, writing and selling the first computer programming curriculum for homeschoolers. Phyllis Wheeler tells stories that encourage us to step outside our comfort zones. She's been a journalist, an engineer, and a homeschooling mom. Now she's thrilled to be following her dream, authoring books for young people. Homeschoolers will be interested in her YouTube channel, Bringing Up Book Lovers, which features interviews with authors of middle grade books and reviews of books for homeschoolers. Learn more about her books and get a free short story when you sign up for her occasional newsletter at phyllisweeler.com.